0: This sermon, A Godward Perspective, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, June thirteenth, two 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Would you open up your Bibles to James 4? And I believe, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning for whatever reason, I believe that our Bibles are back out. They should be under the seats. I heard somebody say, Woo! <laughs> good, good. Love that you get excited about God's word being in the chair in front of you. Uh, Grab one of those Bibles and turn to James 4. We continue our study through the book of James. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 17. So would you stand? Let's read God's word as we begin. James 4, verse 13. if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help together. Lord, as we come to your word, we are wholly dependent on you. Lord, we are wholly dependent right now for understanding, for the ability to apply what we hear, and for any fruitfulness that will come. Out of our time together this morning through this word. So we ask, work in us now. For though we are insufficient, you are all sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen to this. The United Nations complex sits on 16 acres of New York City's choicest real estate bordering the east river and manhattan the lean immense secretariat building rises into the sky the sun reflecting off its window walls bright flags of the nations of the world fly in the breeze off the river the most prominent is the blue and white un flag it's two white reeds of olive branches surrounding the world A visitor is immediately struck by the grandeur of the building, stirred by the sight of dignitaries stepping out of black limousines to cross the massive plaza. He realizes that if this place represents the powers of the world, one might well want to see the place of worship, where the nations bow before the one under whose rule they govern. The information personnel are bemused. The chapel, you ask? we don't have a chapel. If there is one, I believe it's across the street. The visitor darts across the thoroughfare, dodging New York's taxis, and successfully arrives at the opposite building's security clearance desk. Well, there is a chapel here, responds the officer, but it's not associated with the UN. He thumbs through a directory. Oh, oh yeah, I see. It's all right here. It's across the street. Just tell them you're looking for the meditation room. Again, The visitor dashes across the pavement. An attendant tells him the room is not open to the public. It's a non-essential area. And there has been a personnel cutback. But a security guard will escort the visitor through long crowded hallways and swinging glass doors. Again, there is a pervasive sense of weighty matters being discussed in the noble pursuit of world peace. The guide pauses at an unmarked door. He unlocks it and gingerly pushes it open. The small room is devoid of people or decoration. The walls are stark white. There are no windows. A few wicker stools surround a large square at the rock center of the room. It is very quiet, but there is no altar, rug, vase, candle, or symbol of any types of religious worship. Lights in the ceiling create bright spots of illumination on the front wall. One focuses on a piece of modern art, steel squares and ovals. Beyond the abstract shapes, there is nothing in those bright circles of light. They are focused on a void. And it is in that void that the visitor suddenly sees the soul of the brave new world. As I read that this week, I thought, what a picture of the godlessness of our pleasure-seeking world. By the way, you can look this room up on the Internet. It is exactly how it was just described. The UN, Nations United to Pursue Peace and Prosperity for All Mankind, and God is nowhere. I read that repeatedly this week, and my blood boiled as I thought to myself, what an arrogant and evil world we live in. And then I went to our text this morning, and I realized that Long before the UN existed, James sounds the alarm of arrogant godlessness, not to the governments or the world governments, but to the church, to us, to these believers scattered in the first century and by implication of saving grace to us as well. And in this morning's text James is going to do two things as he addresses our arrogant godlessness. One, he exposes it. And then two, he explains the remedy. He doesn't leave us sitting with an awareness of our godlessness, but he he gives us the remedy. And if we could take this text this morning and just try and state these four verses in one short sentence. It would be this. True humility is living in total dependence on God. True humility is living in total dependence on God. We're going to approach our text in two ways this morning. First, we're going to look at the evil of presumption. The pride and arrogance of self-sufficiency we'll find. And then second, the humility of dependence. And so notice in our first point, the evil of presumption. Look at verse 13 with me again. James says, come now. In other words, listen up. (laughs) Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a prophet. James begins verse thirteen really by by illustrating something that we're all very familiar with. Planning. Now his context here is business, but, but I don't think we should limit the point here merely to our business ventures. There's a broader point here that is meant to, to connect to life in general. Business planning. Or personal planning. In some way, every day, everyone makes plans. In other words, James is addressing something that is very ordinary here. It's very mundane. We all plan. And for those of you who say, well, I don't plan. Well, that is in itself a plan. That's your plan. I'm not going to plan. So, yes, you are a planner. Planning is pretty mundane, isn't it? It's pretty ordinary. We do it all day long, every day. And I want you to notice what James says in verse 16 before we go any further. You'll notice that in verse 16, after putting forward this illustration of something that's very mundane and ordinary for us, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And then he says, all such boasting is evil. Now, I know we skipped over a couple verses there, but those words in verse 16 are directly connected to the planning in verse 13. And what James says in verse 16 is very unexpected. He, he paints this picture in our minds of planning, And then he turns around and he says, Yes, your planning is arrogant and evil. It's it's you boasting in yourself. I didn't expect that. I thought this week, wow, what's wrong with planning? What is wrong with planning? In fact, doesn't scripture teach that planning is a good thing? Right? You could go to the Proverbs. That repeatedly refers to the wisdom of planning. Ephesians 5 says that we are to redeem the time. Well, you know what? Redeem the time means you need to have a plan, right? When we plan, we imitate God Himself, the master planner, and the one who devised the ultimate plan, the gospel that would save sinners. Like you and I. And so from family planning to financial planning, planning is good to God. So what is James's problem, right? What, what is so wrong with planning? Does James believe that that calendars subvert the sovereignty of God? Is James anti profit and anti-business? No. Here's what's wrong with the planning in verse 13. Like the UN nations, UN nations, like the United Nations, it's godless. It's godless. God is nowhere to be found in verse 13, whether it's content or intent. God is nowhere to be found In the planning of verse 13. Did you notice there's no mention of God's authority in verse 13. There's no mention of his providence. His purposes. His promises. There's no mention of his church or his will. There's no mention of his word. There's no mention of his sovereignty. There's no mention of his empowering spirit. There's no mention of his sustaining grace. There's no mention there's nothing in verse 13 that reflects a submission to God or a dependence upon God. Verse 13 is all me. <laughs> my plans, my intentions, my projections, my ability. It's all me, no God. Better yet, it's me as God. That's what's wrong with verse 13. Planning isn't what's wrong with verse 13. The approach to planning is what's wrong with verse 13. It's godless. Now, given that, one might think that James is writing to atheists, right? He's not. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. He's writing to to you and me. And the relevance of his words reveals just how atheistic you and I can be. We can profess Christ with our mouth all day long and then functionally live as atheists. Too often, I'm a practical atheist. I'm a professing Christian, but I'm a practical atheist. I love what Kent Hughes said. He says about verse 13, he says, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, and then he says most, Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, And numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. That, my friends, is functional atheism. Simply put, God is simply not part of my life. On Sunday, He is, but Monday through Saturday, I've got this. I've got this, God. You know what that's called, right? Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is going about life as if God doesn't exist. Or if he does, I don't need his help. That's the idea of self-sufficiency. It's the arrogant assumption that I and master of my life and destiny. And I would never say that, and, and I don't believe you would say that. But if you watch my life close enough and long enough, you might wonder if that's what I think. Right? And self-sufficiency is it's serious. It's it it it's pervasive, it's natural. It's ordinary, and it's subtle. Just ask, just ask yourself this question. How aware am I, moment by moment, of my absolute dependence upon God? I have asked myself that question all week long, and I have failed the test. I'm just here to tell you. I do not live moment by moment, event to event, situation to situation, with an awareness of my absolute dependence upon God. And, and that really is, that, that is the powerful poison of arrogant assumption and self-sufficiency. It blinds us. And we don't. Sometimes it's so subtle. We don't. We don't. We're not even aware, but it blinds us to what's real. What I do, what I have, and what I am, is all by the grace of the Great I Am. Self-sufficiency, arrogant presumption blinds me to that reality. And at times, I'm not even aware. But the truth is, is that all I have, all I am, and all I get to do is by the grace of God. Acts 17, verse 25 says talks about God as the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything. I love, I love the, what Luke says. He says, he, you know, he could have said God gives us everything, but I love that he threw in there life and breath. You just took that breath because God gave it to you. That's pretty exhaustive. <laughs> god alone is the great i am god alone is sufficient and he alone gives us everything god alone needs no one god alone needs nothing to the contrary i am needy i am insufficient i am dependent And I need God for everything, whether it is my financial planning or my business planning or the very breath that I just took. And James tells us in verse 16 that the failure to recognize that isn't just a bad idea. It's not just a bad habit. It's not merely an oversight. He says it's evil. That's a strong word. It's evil. Do you know the greatest expression? That I am insufficient and God is completely sufficient. Do you know what the greatest expression that is in your life? The gospel. The gospel. You were a sinner under the wrath of God. And the book of Romans is so clear. There is nothing under the law. There is nothing under the heavens that you could ever do to make yourself right with God. You were completely dependent upon a man named Jesus, who, though he was in the form, who, though he was, uh, who, who did not count his equality with God something to be grasped, and yet he emptied himself by humbling himself, becoming a man without. Unbecoming God and gave Himself not only as a servant but as a curse and a sacrifice for sinners like you and I. You and I could never do what Jesus did. We heard it about this morning. There's only one mediator between a holy God and sinful man, and it is Jesus, our great covenant keeper, our once and for all sacrifice. And if you do not know him, you will only know the wrath of God for eternity, and you can't do anything about it. There's no plan that you can craft that God would accept There is no no plan that you can, no plan or path that you can put yourself on that would get to that point that God would say, my glory is satisfied. There's only one plan. And it's God's plan that says, those who believe in Jesus Christ will be mercifully saved. And by the way, that plan of the gospel is is not in part. There are no phases. As Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. And as the Father above cried out through the empty tomb, it is enough. The plan to be fully accepted and loved by God has been completed in Jesus Christ there is nothing in our lives folks that reminds us more of what James is saying here our absolute dependence on god than the gospel itself and if you're not a believer this morning i just appeal to you whatever you're trying whatever your plans are maybe maybe this resonates with you, you came to church points oh yeah that's me i'm making plans and i'm going to retire and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and, and you're, you're, you're lunging for satisfaction. You're grasping for relevance and purpose in a fallen world. Your plan is insufficient. And the Lord has brought you here this morning to yield your heart by his grace through faith to his plan, the only plan the only plan that you need. So James says, your presumption, here's what's wrong with your plans. They're godless. They're godless. There's a better way. And he gives us a remedy. So so what is the remedy to our arrogant and evil presumption? Well, notice what he says in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is so clear. He says, instead of saying, I will, he says, say this. Don't say this. Say this. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills that we live and go here and do this and do that. Now right up front, just let me say this. If we're not careful, we can turn those words of verse 15 if the Lord wills into just another Christian cliche. Please don't, we don't need any more Christian cliches. Or just religious superstition. If I just say this, right? When I was in the mortgage world, I knew a guy. I don't know if he was a Christian or not, but he professed, but he had a real superstition. I'm sure for him it was a theology. But if he would speak over that loan file in the name of Jesus, this loan will be approved. He was guaranteed, he knew in his mind it'd be approved. Even if I told him that loan's not going to get approved, buddy, I'm just telling you right now. This isn't a religious superstition. Verse 15 is more than a catchphrase. It's more than words. It's a humble disposition. Listen, if the Lord wills, I will. Those words flow from a humble disposition of the heart that comes from remembering two things about life and God. So here's the remedy. Here's the remedy for our arrogant self-sufficiency. First, James tells us, remember how uncertain life is. Did you notice that in verse 14? He says, you boast in all your plans for tomorrow. You're making all of these plans. And then in verse 14 he says, but you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. (laughs) How humbling is that? You, you, You don't even know what the next second will bring. You're making all these plans. You're so sure of yourself. But you, the truth is, you don't know. Life is uncertain. Now, we can relate to this. We want to know the future, <laughs> don't you? We, we want to know the future. I want to know where this church will be in a year. Will it be 300 or zero? <laughs> we want to know. The future parents want to know how their children will do as they grow up. Will they know the Lord? Will they serve God? Will they live past 20? Will they get married and have kids? We we want to know. How many times have you said, man, I wish I knew? We want to know stuff. James reminds us, but you don't. You don't, but we live as if we do, don't we? We live as if we do. How many times have you said, well, that's not how I planned it, or yeah, yeah, you know what? That, that was not part of the plan. Recently, Don and I, we went to San Diego for a few days uh, to hang out on the beach with our kids and in-laws. Um, wait, are they our in-laws? Did I get that wrong? Okay, good friends. <laughs> and officially family. One of them sitting right back there. So anyway, whatever. Uh, So we had nice round trip ticket, Tucson to San Diego, 50 minute flight, full days because we're leaving late. We're getting there early. We're leaving late. And about three weeks before our trip, I get this email says, oh, by the way, your flight back to Tucson has been canceled. So you're going to have to leave early in the morning now. And we're actually going to route you instead of going straight to to Tucson, we're gonna route you to Vegas. You'll have a three and a half layover, and then you'll get to Tucson sometime that later afternoon. I thought, what? That is not what we lost a whole day. And then a week later, I get another email that says, Oh, your your flight to San Diego from San Diego, that's been canceled as well. So you're gonna to have to leave early in the morning, and we're routing you to Vegas. Again, a three-and-a-half-hour delay, and then you'll get in San Diego sometime in the afternoon. And I thought, we lost another day. <laughs> that is not how we planned it. We had no idea. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but God does. Isaiah 46.10 says, God declares the end from the beginning and everything in between that's my addition first john 320 just says it simply god knows everything pretty clear so there is no better cure for our racing minds and anxious hearts that sends us into a whirlwind of self-sufficient activity than knowing that what we don't know is fully known by an all-knowing and infinitely good God. And James wants us to get that here. James just doesn't say, you don't even know what tomorrow brings to leave us hanging and living in despair. He wants us to understand. That's why he says, no, say this, if the Lord wills. Well, implied in that is that the Lord knows. So the first thing in in cultivating a humble dependence upon God is to understand something about life. We don't know, but God does. Second, James says, remember how fleeting life is. Notice what he says in 14b. He not only tells us, you don't know what tomorrow brings, but he says, what is your life? And he says this, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James, James says, not only do you not know what tomorrow brings, you may not even be around tomorrow. (laughs) He compares our lives to a morning mist that vanishes in the sun. Living in Arizona, we're familiar with Misting systems, right? How long do you see the mist in the air? But a second. You see that moisture for, it's here and then it's gone. James says your life is like a mist. Well, we have a raw reminder of this, don't we? In our brother Dave Franck. Who last week we celebrated his life as he went to be with the Lord. Dave's life here on earth is over. He's with Jesus. He is one that was described in Hebrews 12, verse 24, the spirits of the righteous, the place we all want to be. But his life is over here. And in my time with him, one thing that he and I had in common was some wild pre-conversion stories. And I thought about that this week. I thought, you know, we we would tell those stories like they were yesterday. (laughs) They feel like they were yesterday. And it reminded me of the brevity of life. I get this thing on my phone every day uh, in the notification section. A photo just automatically gets pulled up and shows up on my phone. And sometimes it takes me way back. And when I get those, if the kids or Donna or a friend or somebody's in there, I'll, I'll text that to him, just to remind them. And most times people go, like, wow, that was, I remember that, or I don't remember that. But that's just been a habit of mine. But as I got in this text, I thought, I'm gonna keep doing that because those photos remind me how fast my life is flying by. It's but a mist. It reminds me of the fleeting nature, the frailty of life. And yet, we live as though we are invincible and immortal. We take tomorrow for granted. We feel smart and we feel strong. And we think life in this world is an unending circle instead of the straight line that Scripture says it is. Truth is, none of us will live outside of the plans of the Lord. Our life is but a mist, but God knows. Our lives are in his hands. No one in this room, no one in this room will live a moment shorter or a moment longer than God by his mercies and according to his wise purposes for you has ordained no one psalm 139 16 says your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them no one in this room will live a second Shorter or longer than God has written in his book. Cancer does not determine the number of your days. A drunk driver will not determine the number of your days. COVID will not determine the number of your days. COPD did not determine the number of Dave's days. God alone knows And God alone holds your life in his hands. He has ordained your days. He has counted them. And he has recorded them in his book. And we rarely think about this, do we? We rarely think about this. But that is to our spiritual detriment Because this perspective is key to living in humble wisdom before the Lord with the right priorities and the right purposes. That's James' point here. Remember what James is saying. This letter is written so that we would know what it looks like to live by faith in a fallen world, that we would have a picture, a snapshot of what a maturing Christian looks like Living day by day by the grace and in the mercies of the Lord. And in chapter 3, verse 13, James as much as said, Who is wise and understanding among you? In other words, who is spiritually mature? And then he turns around and says, By his life, let him be seen by this, his meekness or his humility of wisdom. In other words, James is saying, Humility is the key to living. Humility is the key to being a mature Christian. We saw that a couple weeks ago. Pastor Tim did a great job of helping us understand what that humility looks like in relationships. James started his book by showing us what humility in trials looks like. And here he says, humility is recognizing that you are wholly dependent upon God for everything. Psalm 90, Moses wrote Psalm 90, probably the only psalm he wrote. He wrote it in his old age. So, a man of wisdom and experience following the Lord, he says, Teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. When we understand, when we learn, when we embrace, when we accept the reality that we are not in control, God is. It doesn't mean we don't plan. It doesn't mean we're not intentional. But it will cultivate humility that leads to godliness in our lives. James says, remember, God alone knows. He knows what will come next. He controls every second of our existence. He alone is sovereign and supreme and sufficient right down to the breath we take. And that's James' points here. Do we plan? Yes. But we plan with the perspective that God is in complete control. We plan with a submitted heart knowing that all our plans and all our days are dependent upon the master planner. That's the point of Proverbs 16:9 that says, "The heart of a man what plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps." James, James, the book of James, which is known by many to be the New Testament Proverbs, this section verses 13 through 17 is merely a rewording if you will of Proverbs 16:9. That's what James wants us to see. And oh, how we need to see it, church, because this reality that James puts forth, it should bring joy, it should bring hope, it should bring comfort. Because if all I have are my plans, then when those plans come crashing down and they will and they do, what do I have? (laughs) What do I have? Just think about how you respond when your plans are interrupted. That's a good gauge. for how how much of this text is in you. How do I respond? I didn't plan that for today. James is writing to Christians. You know what that means? It means that the gospel has taken hold of their heart. And the gospel gives us new purpose. If the gospel is landed in your heart, you don't have to live in verse 13. Verse, verse, verse 13, verse 15 is yours. The gospel gives new purpose. It gives substance to your ordinary plans because God is at work in them. And when we make decisions and we set priorities in view of our salvation in Jesus, well, our plans, I believe, more accurately reflect who we are, why we exist, what our purpose in this world is, what we've been called to, who we belong to, and where we are going, and when our planning reflects those things in a greater and greater way. I think the fruit for us personally is that we live with a greater joy. We live with a deeper sense of contentment and our lives in all we do radiate the glory of God to those around us with greater intensity. What next? Well, I want to close with a little bit of application. James has just helped us see that true humility, true humility is understanding we are totally dependent on God. So I'm gonna do four Ds that cultivate daily dependence. For you, those of you who love handles. How do we put self sufficiency to death? How do we fight the fight against arrogant presumption? And you're going to find these are simple, these are not earth shattering, these are probably not new, they may be very ordinary and mundane, but I believe the Lord will use them in our lives. So four Ds to cultivate daily dependence on God. First, declare. And that doesn't mean name it, claim it. What I mean by that is declare your dependence on God daily. Sometimes what I need to do is just preach to myself. Quit listening to myself and start preaching to myself. And, I, and I've adopted this recently Declare your dependence. The first, listen, if you're like me, I wake up and my feet hit the ground running, and the moment that my eyes are open, my mind is racing. There are so many things to do in a day. There are so many questions that I have. There are people I need to talk to. That There's just, my mind immediately is going a hundred miles an hour, and it is easy to just hit the floor running. Don't do that. I have been laying in bed for just a couple minutes. I wake up, and before I hit the ground running, I declare, I need you today. I need your grace today. In everything I do. I need your help. I need you, Lord, to be at work in me so that I can bring you glory as I bless and serve others today. I can't do it on my own strength. I can't do it on my own. And now when my, when my feet hit the ground running, I have already, I have already established that. I now hit the ground running, already having reminded myself and appealed to the Lord above who is seated on his throne, help, (laughs) help. And keep doing that throughout the day. In the moment. Push away from the desk. Lord, I need your help right now because I don't know how to communicate this email. You know, Charles Spurgeon, they say he had seven steps to his crow's nest that he would preach from. And with every step, he would say, as he went up to preach, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Step two, Holy Spirit, I believe you're at work mightily in me. The next step, Holy Spirit, empower me to preach today. In other words, he saw every step that he took into that pulpit as an opportunity to cry out to the Lord Help. (laughs) How often do you find yourself just stopping in the middle of the day saying, help? Even in the little mundane things. Husbands, you're going home after a long day of work. You need to be crying out on the way home, help. My real job is about to begin. (laughs) Moms, are you chasing babies and diapers, and you're frustrated, and your husband's nowhere to be found, and is this all that life really is? Help! <laughs> so I don't kill my kids. You're going to community group, and maybe there's nothing earth-shattering, but you're about to sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ who just like you have been fighting the fight of faith all week long and they need to be encouraged and you need to be encouraged so as you drive the community group and you walk up that sidewalk, help that I might be a help to these people and that I might be helped through these people. Declare your dependence on God. Second, devote, devote yourself, devote yourself to daily devotions. I told you this is a simple and not earth shattering. Spending time in the word and prayer daily declares your dependence on God. And I know some people say, it doesn't matter when you do your devotions. I would disagree. Everybody's in a different position. If If you're working the night, the graveyard shift, okay. But what is the beginning of your day? Don't go to the word just at the end of your day. You need the word of God in you the moment that you hit it. So unless there is some extraordinary circumstance, I would submit to you, get into God's word and prayer as early as possible. It will not only fill your soul and strengthen you spiritually for the day, but it is a wonderful expression that declares your daily dependence on God. When I neglect my daily time in the word and prayer, you know what I'm declaring? I don't need you. Stay close. Stay, call, stay on call. Be at the ready, Lord, because something might happen today where I feel desperate and I feel like I need you. That is not our God. Our God is a consuming God. We need him in all things at all times, and he is not at our ready. We are at his ready. And when we get up in the morning and we begin all of our plans, a way that we can submit them to the Lord is to say, go into, not say, to go into His word and pray. Listen. I know there's a lot of things that can get in the way with. I think it's as simple as this: In all of our excuses for an anemic devotional life, I believe it's simple, as simple as this: pride. Pride keeps me out of God's word. Pride keeps me from spending time in prayer with the Lord. It's that simple. And you know what we learned a couple weeks ago? God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do we do in this area? So we draw near to God in repentance. We submit ourselves to him by prioritizing time in the word and prayer and experience his grace. Third, deflect. We want to declare our need. We, we, we want to devote ourselves to his word and prayer. And this is very simple. Deflect all glory to God. Deflect all glory to God. When somebody encourages you, when somebody thanks you. Look those moments, look for moments and opportunities to be able to deflect glory to God. I simply say, hey, I get the joy of serving you. I get the joy of preaching. God gets all the glory. And right there, I have not only preached to you, but I have preached to myself. It's not about me. If there's any fruitfulness in your life, it's not because of what I did. It's God's work in you. So deflect. And finally, do. Notice how James ends this. Verse 17, he says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is probably a whole nother sermon. Let me say this. James reminds us that we sin in two ways what we do, sins of commission, and what we don't do, sins of omission. And that's James' point here. And in this context, James wraps this up by saying, Be a doer. Of Big theme, right, in James. Be a doer of the word. He says it this way, or the right thing to do. And in this context, the right thing to do, in this context, being a doer of the word is to reject the delusion that God is not relevant even in the mundane details of my life. To reject that wholeheartedly. How do we do that? by living with a humble disposition that says, as James did, what is my life? I am wholly dependent on God who holds my eternal destiny in his merciful and sovereign hands. So, whatever my plans are for today, tomorrow, and beyond, I hold them With a heart that gladly and gratefully says, Lord willing.